Hi, hello, and welcome to the third episode of Digging Up Ancient Aliens. I am your host, Frederick, and today we will continue our excavation for ancient aliens. If you haven't already, please leave a positive review for the show on your favorite podcast player. This really helps us, and I also get this little nice notification when you do. And surely I will thank you by name on the following episode. You can also share the show with a friend that you think might enjoy it, or like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever platform you prefer where we have an account at the moment. So this is the show where we watch and break down the famous TV show Ancient Aliens from History Channel. And I have a background within archaeology, so I will dig down into the claims on the show and we will see if they hold water or if they are bunk and what the truth really are and see if we can learn something about our history, our past and maybe our current society. And at first I like to, before I watch it, just jot down what I believe the show will be. So we will head to past me for a little bit and talk about what we think the show will be about. So we have Ancient Aliens The Visitors that aired on April 27, 2010. And what will it be about? Um, The evidence episode was kind of a letdown. So I hope this one will be better, but I'm fairly confident that we will see quite a lot of stock photos. And of course the talking heads. It would be nice if they had some on-location filming like they have with uh, Giorgio in the last episode, but I will not keep my hope up for that. And The Visitors is quite a vague title. Are they going to talk about what they, the visitors did, uh, how they arrived, how they looked at, um, or how they looked um, in general? I'm not sure there, to be honest. But maybe they will show some pictures uh, that... They claim is depictions of aliens if you look with your head in just a certain way. I hope to see some more guerrilla editing from some rogue archaeologist again. That really contradicts what they have been saying for a while. Hope at least. And I suspect that we won't touch anything in Europe again. It's just a hunch. Maybe aliens don't like being cold or... I, I do have my theories on why Europe is lacking the show so far, but um, that would be a discussion for another time. All right, uh, I don't know what else to really add here. Visitors, vague title, but let's see what they have to bring to the table this time around. So we're opening up on the speaker talking about how... Many today believe that alien visitation and abduction is just a thing that happened in modern times. Well, sure, uh, I would even go so far to argue that it's 
first started in 1957 Brazil and later made famous by the Hill abductions. But let's see what they have for arguments that it happened throughout the history. And immediately we go to Roswell, straight out of the intro. We head right into the famous, well, um, alien crash. Or rather, well, weather balloon would be the wrong word, but we will talk about that. But they claiming that first the uh, army admitted it was a UFO and then changed it to weather balloon. And we meet Nick Pope, who apparently was a British Ministry of Defense between 1985 and 2006. And he's asking why this was covered up by the military. And we meet medical doctor Stephen M. Greer. Again, he was in the previous episode at least, claiming that if what happened in Roswell become known everything about the myth about our origin, history and archaeology would fall, about, fall apart. I doubt that. Well, I would say that the Roswell incident isn't really the goal of this show to talk about, but the short version is that in 1947 on Foster Ranch, uh, 75 miles northwest of Roswell in New Mexico. It was discovered by rancher Mac Brazel, who uh, apparently was some sort of a flying saucer buff, and he reported it to the local sheriff, who then reported it to the Roswell Army Field. But, of course, the press got wind of it, and... They went with the description crashed flying saucer, as this was what the local sheriff had reported to the army field major. Uh, but as it turned out, it was basically a weather balloon. It was part of a balloon train that were put out to catch uh, these long ultra low frequencies and it was used as part of project mogul to detect soviet nuclear tests but unfortunately the roswell daily record ran with a story reporting a flying reporting a flying saucer but the following day this was corrected and retracted by the paper paper when they got the proper information from the army base. So it's not really a cover-up. And if you want to know more about the Roswell incident, um, I would recommend you to head over to skeptoid.com who have episode, give me a moment, um, episode 79 that covers this in extreme detail and Brian Dunning who is the host over there has done a really great job to be honest on this so you can head over there I will put some links in the show notes if you want to know more about the Roswell incident but let's move on with our ancient aliens they 
talk about that um, half of the world's population believe that aliens at some point have visited the Earth. And we have uh, Jonathan Young who quote says there's probably intelligent life somewhere. And again, I I think I touched this on episode one. I can totally see that there is life somewhere out there. The question is more, well, at least according to the ancient aliens, if they actually have visited us, that I don't buy at the moment, at least. Let's see <laughs> how it goes with this TV show. And we switch over to our friend um, Lex Luthor from France, or Mr. Bouval, who talk about the age of the Earth. And during this, I caught myself actually double-checking the numbers that they gave, but they, they got it right. They got the age of the Earth right, at least. That's something good, at least. And then we meet Sarah Seeger, um, a professor of planetary science at MIT. I'm not sure how she was tricked into this, but she don't really add much to the discussion. Is well, might there be life out there? Yes, no, maybe. Quite vague statement. It could be, it couldn't. Nothing clear, to be honest. And then, dun dun dun, finally we meet the one and only Erich von Däniken. I'm not sure where he was in the first episode, to be honest. Um, it felt as he would have been there, but he meets us in a blue blazer and he's talking about humans that we are quite full of ourselves and thinking ourselves to be the greatest beings in the universe. And I guess that's not wrong by itself. And then we meet another Scientist, uh, Jennifer Heldman, a planetary scientist from NSA, the AMS Research Center. Um, also talking about next to nothing that humans thought that we were the center of the universe. And yeah, uh, we thought that for some time. We found out otherwise, and most of us has change it and then they switch to the moon landing and we actually get boss aldrin oh yeah you're right we got the boss aldrin you know the the guy who in 1969 was the second person to walk on the moon i I wonder how they got him to be on here (laughs) um but yeah, except walking on the moon, he is quite famous for beating, um, you know, the moon hoaxer in the face. And see the link in the show description. But he talks about boss, and well, he talks about himself, and but he talks about him and Armstrong being magnificent aliens, which is. True, they were alien to the moon. And looking at the show timer, I realized that we're seven minutes in and we really didn't have 
seen much of anything and haven't really digged down onto anything at all. Uh, they most say that life on other planets is a possibility and yeah, sure, it's a possibility that we can humor still. Nothing to disprove it or prove it. But then we have Van Daniken again coming in, blue sports codes and his books clearly in screen so you can run out and buy them later, I assume, maybe. But he comes in and say that ancient history would be much more awesome with aliens and sure, um, it would. <laughs> but for the love of Freya, um, they haven't yet provided any such evidence at all. Um, they just shown that they have a decent stock photo subscription. But then we, we switch gear. We head over to South America and the speaker, he's talking about the Nazca people and that they disappeared during mystical circumstances around 500 CE. We, we will get to that in a little bit. And then we meet Alice Herdlitzke, who was a Czech anthropologist who emigrated to the United States. And he was actually the founder and the first curator of the physical anthropology at what we well today know as the Smithsonian. Of course, he was not without his flaws. He was indeed a man of his time. Well, he did some decent work and had some decent idea, but he was not fond of the evolution. He did not think that humans evolved from hominids, that the find that uh, had been made um, and theorized up till then was just fossilized apes with no connection to the human race at all. And during later years, he also have started to come under criticism for how he treated remains of the Native Americans. Yeah, but that's his career in short, short, short uh, spark notes. But um, according to this episode, he came to the ancient city of Kawachi in 1910. Or at least that was the show tell us. I could really not find anything to confirm this. To be honest, Alice clearly was in South America at one point. But the only printed reference about his trip to this area was in 1939. So a bit later it could just have been printed. Well, what's that? Uh, 30 years almost after. But could be, could be, but it was the only thing I could find. But the sources are quite old, to be honest. And unfortunately, I could not find the article itself. Only references to it uh, made by later people. And if anyone out there might have some access or resources I'm missing, please send the article to me if possible. It's, it's called uh, Trepanation Among Prehistoric People, especially in America. I will put a link to the paper in the show notes. 
And as I said, if you can dig it up, please send it my way. It will be fun to scroll through it at least. But the show seems to want to describe that Alice Hedlitska was the first to find these elongated skulls, which is not true. See, the earliest report I could find seems to be of a VJ McGee who studied 19 skulls brought to the US by Manuel Antonio Muniz in, in 1893. And the article, the first article by him and later one with Muniz was published in 1984. But my th- theory for them to phrase it like this is that um, Alice probably was at one point at um, Kawachi and why do they want to connect the cranial skulls with the Kawachi side so badly well I assume it's mainly due to the Nazca people who well of course as we know from last episode were behind the giant cliff and they even implied the site was mysteriously abandoned around 500 CE, um, which is great, but not that strange. Cultures come and go through history all the time. It is true that the main archaeological site for the Nazca people is Kawachi, which has hundreds of mounds and a, footy, a 70 foot high main pyramid. Kawashi was thought for a long time to actually be the capital city of the Nazca people, but in recent excavation, it's it seems to indicate that it was that it seems to indicate that it actually don't have any distinct homes there. So, and more than forty of the mounds are actually just carved hill. Uh, so not stone structural structures, which originally looked like hundreds of mounds, seems to be instead of just a sculpted landscape. Um, today we think that the Kawachi site is mainly a pilgrim's site for the Nazca people. And the evidence since the lack of dwellings and the copious amount of pottery, textiles, food and shells suggest that they left these as offerings not to eat later and the Kavachi or the Nazca people their dwellings are were built more of natural materials so not stones which unfortunately don't leave much trace but The Kavachi site was not a permanent city. People went there regularly, but it was during religious rituals more than to live there, so to say. And sure, the Nazca people did use elongated skulls and trepanation, but they are not a culture I would associate with elongated skull if you would bring it up. That would be the Paracas culture, which they don't mention at all during this episode. The Paracas was a culture that was discovered quite late in history, actually as late as 1924. And it was due to these incredibly fine textiles began to show up at local markets for sale in Lima, Peru and 
a fine man named Giulio Tello, uh, Tello, maybe. Uh, I'm sorry for the pronunciation there, but um, Julio inquired about him, and as I said, in oh, in 1925, he made what many consider is the most important discovery discovery in Peru. Uh, he actually found hundreds of mummies in shaft tombs, wrapped in these very incredible textiles. When Teo dated these mummies back from 1000 to 200 BCE, and he also is the one who, who got the name, the culture, and he went with Paracas. And we have found multiple cemetery um, in and around the Cerro Colorado on the Paracas Peninsula where the especially where the desert meets the sea and we have hundreds of mummies and it almost seems to be mass graves we they're quite special they're wrapped in bundles so if you would look them up it's not like the Egyptian mummy that's you know covered in uh, linen wrappings and then put in a coffin snow these are put in a seated position uh, covered with this texture so you have almost like mm, not as you would wrap a baby <laughs> you can't really get them to sit up that well but yeah you're wrapping them to hold this position and with these bundles uh, you have a outer layer and inside you find more textiles and you often find ceramics and gold and jewelry. And if you wouldn't start to look into the Paracas culture, you start to notice that they were heavily influenced by even earlier culture that's called the Chauvin culture. And we see that they share especially deities and expressions in their... Um, how they portray their gods um, in particular the fang deity I mean, the fang deity is a quite interesting character especially in South America and maybe we can take an episode later on just digging in that because he shows up quite a lot in the records um, you can easily spot him um, but something that sets the Paracas aside from other cultures, they perform, as I mentioned, the mummifications. Um, and with this burial, we, we have found these um, very, very fine textiles. And they usually, these wraps contains well, shirts and mantles. And especially the mantles are the part that gives us a quite great insight into the culture and the beliefs. I'm sure many of them have ordinary patterns, not showing anything, just as decoration. And we have depictions of cute animals and birds, but also what scholars have given a quite, well, according to me at least, an unfortunate name. Uh, supernatural humans. Most of them seems to depict the fang deity from the Chauvin culture. The similarities are 
quite obvious if you know what to look for. We see fangs coming out of the face. We have clawed hands and feet and very large circular googly eye, almost like some sort of steampunk glasses almost. Um, and the most, most telling element is the snakes that comes off from the belt and even sometimes the, the hair. So I wouldn't say that it depicts an aliens, if you were thinking that at the moment. No, this is clearly a god that they are depicting. I would assume so at least. But at least these elements would seem to confirm that it's the same deity that shows up in both the Paracas culture and in Chauvin culture and later even in later South American cultures. We also see signs of transformations where humans are turned into jaguars. And it's also a quite common religious tradition within the South American cultures, just how people transform, especially into jaguars. Uh, but we also have examples of bird people. Um, but let's let's get back to the <laughs> ancient aliens episode. But this is the background for the skulls, at least. Um, but we meet Childress. He was also in the first episode. And he talks about these skulls being really bizarre to look at. And I could, I could agree on that. And we also meet um, Robert M. Scotch. Uh, who is a geologist and he also he actually do have some decent ideas that well the elongated hand was just a religious practice among humans that shows up in at different times and different tribes and we also meet a uh, Georg Schweinfurth um, talking about the tribe Mangbitu who did cranial binding and they go into talking about why was this done, done? was it to distinguish elite part of the social strata or maybe even a way to achieve higher level of consciousness well there's many theories behind it and it do differ depending on what time what people what culture you are looking on so there's there's not a one answer to this there's multiple and if you would look down in the show notes for this episode you will find some reading suggestions at least for south america we then switch to giorgio our famous meme guy and he talks about the they wanted to mimic the gods and the gospels have been real because why would people do this medical painful procedures otherwise especially that kids wouldn't need and i think then about well circumcision foot binding does that mean that all gods are aliens or are all gods real um, he he creates more questions that he's actually trying to answer. But I, I see what he wants to do. That why would they transform their children this much if they didn't have a real being to mimic? And well, 
they don't need a real person to mimic them. What we have is quite clear, and as I said, it, it differs uh, between the tribes, between the cultures, and it's not recent. It's not only found in South America or Africa. We will gloss into this a bit later too. And then, bam, we put in the highest gear and switch to the 1995 Alien Autopsy film. You might have encountered black and white and they do an autopsy of what they claim to be an alien. And even the creators have come out um, as late as 2006, so well before the airing of this episode. And admitting that this is fake. Alright, one of them is claiming it's actually based on something he saw. Shown by a secret agent in 1992. But yeah, this video is clearly faked. And they even admit it. But they don't really go into what grey aliens are. And they just show this movie that well the as if the government is hiding and you know the peoples who do this crane cranial um, this elongated heads would look like what we today call a gray alien and then they do a do a little switcheroo we meet dr robert r cargill who is a doctor in biblical archaeology. I might not agree with his field, but he comes in talking about people using their body as art to kind of extreme measurement and that they have done that for a long time. And as I said before, guerrilla <laughs> editing from some archaeologists, but I can agree with him there. There's people who do a lot to their bodies, um, tattoos, uh, piercing, well, you can name it, it's been done, foot binding, um, yeah, elongated skulls, there's a lot of things, and we, we switch back to Childress after this, who um, claiming that archaeologists can't explain how something like skull deformation can be done all over the world. Well, it seems as ancient aliens theorists believe that an idea can only origi origina originate, originate, oregano, <laughs> originate from one uh, one place at one pl time. But as we mentioned in previous episode, that's the it's not the case ideas usually comes in different places by different people without any context. If you're within academia, um, you're quite familiar with this. Uh, somebody publishing what you have been working a lo lot on uh, before you. Um, but same with inventions. Usually multiple people have similar ideas over a long period of time. There's nothing wrong and no archaeologist or historian or anyone serious scientist would think that this was, was something weird 
to be honest. And funny enough, they actually leave out that it was also happening in Europe until early 1900 even. There's even so late that there's a photograph of French cranial binding. In France, they call this the, the bandeau. Um, but the show seems to want to indicate that this was practiced at one time and at the same time across multiple cultures in completely different areas. But as I said, it was, but it was during a long period of time. And we understand what they were after quite quite well. And as I said, we have even photograph of cranial binding in France. You, you can look it up. Um, so you want to Google Bandu to see these pictures. And we've put something in the show notes about it. They also say that this is something that has to be learned. Yeah, sure, by whoever came up with it. All this culture do have or most of them, at least, that they bring up have uh, writing uh, invented. So, okay, they, we're not sure about the writing in South America, to be honest, completely. But again, they, they had big societies. The, the practice would not get lost the same with the, same with the Mangbito tribe. They had this organization that these type of skills would have survived. And look at, take paper, for example. It's a brilliant invention that's come in different form throughout the, the ages. We have papyrus in ancient Egypt. We have paper proper paper in China, uh, vellum when Europe got cut off from the papyrus trade, and the Mayan uh, wrote their codices on a paper that they made out of whitewash bark. And then you have, of course, clay tablets, etc. But all these have the same function, but were invented with materials available to the different cultures. And they were invented at different times. But again, you wouldn't think that this, this was anything strange, to be honest, if you heard it. You wouldn't go to immediately, ah, it must have been aliens. No, <laughs> you would assume that it was inventions, just invented at different times with different resources. It's the same with the cranial binding. It's not this, exactly the same through all the cultures. There's different reasons, as I mentioned, and especially different ways to do it. It's not that they did it exactly the same way. Then it might have been a bit fishy, to be honest. But And we go back to Egypt, back to where we started. Uh, get back to the basis, do some trust falls. Now, we, I, I almost suspected after some time that this would come up, but we will talk about Akhenaten, of course, and of course that he was an alien. So let's buckle up. This might be a crazy ride. And they start to talk about Tepsepi. 
and they claim that this was when the sky gods came to earth in giant boats and turned mud into water and into a new kingdom. Um, well, to start with, if you understand a bit of ancient Egyptian or Coptic for that, for that matter, this becomes quite weird since the literal translation of Septepje uh, would be first occasion or first time you yeah, sure, they could hint that the, the first time that the aliens come to Earth, but we're quite clear what the Egyptians actually meant by this. And then they talk about the god Neturo, a being that came from Cosmos and the almighty god of creation. This made me go scratch my head a little bit. We will touch on that in just a second, because we have our favorite French Lex Luthor imitator claiming that Egyptians really thought that the gods were from the stars. Osiris and Isis, yeah, they were star gods. Osiris are in the constellation Orion, and Isis, that was actually the star Sirius. And you know that Orion nursery of star? Well, all this seems to be part of Bouval's own theory that he calls the Orion Correlation Theory. So he's linking the pyramids in Giza to Orion, the Orion Belt constellation. And as I mentioned, the Neruto, Neturo god that I mentioned, if you were into Egyptian mythology, you might also scratch your head at this point, because there isn't any god by that by that name, and never been, was, it's some sort of bastardization of the god Neter, or the word Neter, to be honest, because Neter, or N-T-R, since the Egyptian hieroglyphal writing system usually skips the vowels, but the Neter is the Egyptian word for literal god. So if you would say, oh my god, you would say, oh my Neter. And this meaning and interpretation of the word has been known and agreed upon since 1903. So this is something that we recently made up or discovered. It's, it's been the common sense on how to interpret this word for over 100 years. And I can't find any papyrus or tablet or much of anything and that seems to correspond with Bouval's theory that Osiris was from the stars. The Egyptians clearly don't speak about it at least. And the Egyptian stories about Osiris, they are quite mixed. They evolved over time and if you start to study the Egyptian mythology, you, you will start to notice that gods come and go when they vein in popularity and some get stronger, some get smashed up with other, but, but some say that the ancestors of Osiris were of heritage from Ra or in some cases Atom, the sun god. We will actually get back to Atom later on um, and not Osiris himself. In other places, he originates from Geb, the sky god, and not the earth goddess. No starships needed there, to be honest, or even mentioned. The stories usually don't talk much about Osiris' reign or anything that. They 
tend to focus more on the later part where Seth kills Osiris and split the bodies in X number parts. And the creation myth they allude to is also quite weird if you have a basic understanding on Egyptian mythology. To start, there's actually several creation myths in ancient Egypt and they, they differ depending on especially what city they were created in. So each city had its own main god and of course that god were the big honcho so they usually made that god more important in their creation myth or when they talk about different things that happen within their mythology. Religion was basically a sort of economy and usually the priesthood went from father to son and if you controlled the different sects you had a good standing in the society to be honest um, and Egyptians in general were a bit lighter with their gods than we were uh, we we even have papyrus scraps uh, where a man uh, now I lost this but I have the story up here at least but in my head yeah, we try to look it up and maybe put something in the show notes about it but we, there's this man and he writes like on a prayer card uh, basically and I don't remember what god he was praying to but basically it comes down to that his prayers had not been answered for quite some time and he was starting to lose his patience and if the god wouldn't start to fulfill his part of the agreements he were getting sacrifices and all that from the man he would go and switch god and <laughs> it's not usually that people at church say oh if god doesn't come through to me now jesus i will head over to buddha and get me something over there, there if you don't start to shape up here on my prayers um so they they had a different approach to religion during this era and my my favorite creation story is from the bremerind papyrus it says quote all manifestation came into be, uh, being after i developed no sky existed no earth existed I created my very own being. My fist became my spouse. I copulated with my hand. I sneezed out shoe. I spat out tefut. I don't really... <laughs> I find it quite funny in a way. And no aliens needed there. <laughs> um, but we have the ge geologist back and uh, wondering why ancient people were so good with stars commoners uh, quote he says commoners knew more about what's going on in the sky than well educated people today answer is quite clear that they looked up more towards the sky and they didn't have light poisoning this the night sky even so the they could, and they, they didn't really have much to do. They could look up and they probably started noticing that things happened. And as their societies evolved, they, they could have people to 
look at the stars and try to find meaning among them. But if you look at maybe cultures more up north where it's freezing cold, six freaking months of the years, where I live in Sweden, for example, the, the cultures don't seem that attached to the night sky in the same way. Um, towards the stars maybe because well it's freaking cold <laughs> when the sun sets but anyway I digress but they continue and they claim that the pharaohs were the sons of Osiris and sure part of the same lineage but it's it's weird why they bring this up because the pharaohs did not claim to be Osiris. They usually claimed to be Horus, if anyone. They even had a Horus name. And it was from Horus they got the right to rule the land, not from the lord of the dead, that would be Osiris. He was part of the resurrection, not the ruling itself. They go on to talk, the Egyptians, we view their pharaohs as living god and yeah that's for example why alexander the great wanted to conquer egypt it was the only place where he could actually become a literal god and they talk about the egyptian artwork showing the pharaohs as the perfect humans and yes they were they the egyptians were really really conservative people nothing really changed if it didn't really have to do and if it changed they were usually quite fussy about it <laughs> and, but and then they pitched it they had this stale society until one day where everything changed dun, dun, dun. and they say that when Akhenaten takes power he almost immediately institutes religious changes and banning the other gods and everything. Well, let's start at the beginning. Akhenaten was originally named Amenhotep IV, just as his father, Amenhotep III. And, well, when his father died, Amenhotep III dies Things stay the same for about a year. Then Amenhotep actually changed name to Akhenaten. And today ancient Egyptians names had magical meanings. So Amenhotep means Amun is pleased. And if you look at Akhenaten, it would mean something like it's beneficial to the Aten, who was a quite minor solar deity at this stage already. With this change, Akhenaten would later on institute monothate, but it was pretty slow, to be honest. Um, he would declare later on, there is no god but Aten. And quite stunning statement in a world where everyone, literally everyone at this point was polytheistic. Monotheism was not invented yet. He was basically the first monotheist um, religion. But uh, remember, Akhenaten still finished up all his father's monuments and temples and things as a dutiful son would do before 
moving with this grandiose plan. And we have our French Lex Luthor, or sorry, Bouval, um, coming that. And he talks about a picture of Akhenaten and the sun disk, and he think that it looks weird. He don't go into any reason why it's weird. Just the race looks weird to him. To me, it looks like a quite fine artistic example from this uh, period that well, archaeologists and historians and Egyptologists go back and call a Marna period. And we have Giorgio that says that poems written later says that beings visited Akhenaten and told him they were gods. Again, there weren't gods, it was a god. And it was Aten, and Aten would also be Akhenaten, since the pharaoh, of course, was a god. And the only claim I could dig up that he, he could at least allure to is the boundary stela at Telamarna that indicates that Athen showed Akhenaten where to place his city because, well, he's closing all the temples, of course, made a few enemies. And one theory is that he had to escape Memphis, actually, and start his own city with hookers and booze and everything else <laughs> basically um, but it seems to be made up by Giorgio or wherever he got it from in turn and they go on to talk about Tel, Tel El Amarna and that he changed the artistic way so the Egyptians and they say that he looks strange and sure it's a bit mean especially depending on how many of themselves look at but and yeah unlike preceding pharaohs throughout history Akhenaten is not shown in art as this young and vigorous leader his statues depicts a man who may have suffered from some deformities he seems to have an elongated face with a pronounced chin almond-shaped eyes and quite wide hips and even suggestions of breasts if you would look at him and they indicates that all of the royal family had his elongated heads even Nefertiti yeah the, the famous Nefertiti you can look up statues and depictions of her in, in some pictures yeah she seems to have same type of skull as Akhenaten but they were Nefertiti and Akhenaten is not related. This royal couple was not, as later on, uh, brother and sister, uh, or half brother and half sister. Um, no, Nefertiti. We don't know much about their parents, but scholars agree that it's not the same as Akhenaten, and she's probably a commoner, not the lovely going around on the market in just rags but still high up in the society type of commoner and then Giorgio sweet sweet Giorgio um, comes in saying that Akhenaten was probably an ET hybrid and we have my man uh, Dr. Cargill the biblical archaeologist um, coming in and saying that, well, Akhenaten was um, just a man of his times, uh, sure. Um, 
he looked maybe strange, but it was just a new artistic way. And he tried to change things up in this society, almost like they needed to have someone to come in or Egypt would take back the license to film in there. And we meet an art historian named Betty Ann Brown from CSU Northridge. She doesn't really add much of value here. It, I'm sure she might have said something that was cut, I assume, because our historian take on the Telamarna period would be uh, interesting at least to li- listen at. Uh, but yeah. We continue on, the, they say that they look weird basically and therefore they must have had some alien DNA in there. And then they bring up that uh, Egypt tried to erase this period, not because it was something that the extremely conservative ancient Egyptians would have thought as shameful. Nah. They wanted to hide that he was an alien. Think back on Roswell, I assume. Um, but remember, ancient Egypt it was one of the most conservative states known to history. The original, if it's not broken, don't fix it state. This would have been um, horrible for them. Um, getting rid of all the gods, uh, closing the temples... This is not how the society should have worked in ancient Egypt. Nothing of this would have been good for the common Egyptians that didn't buy into this new Athen cult. That's even why Ramses I would remove all pharaohs from Amenhotep III to his reign. That includes uh, Tutankhamun. We have um, uh, pharaoh briefly named Y. Uh, we have some intermediate after Tutankhamun. Um, but yeah. Um, and the DNA, well, it's also going out the window. We'll see, soon see why. Some even believe that Akhenaten fled Egypt to the loyal follower. Uh, Akhenaten fled Egypt, well, that went out the window since in 1907, a body um, who is commonly believed to be Akhenaten was found in Kings Valley Tomb 55. And during later years, DNA analysis has been made. And even if there's still discussion in regards if the body really is Akhenaten and father of Tutankhamun, um, it's ongoing and it's not decided yet but remember we have done DNA analysis and we are discussing if the markers indicate that Tutankhamun uh, that the body is related brother wise but there's nothing special in the DNA markers the genetic markers are not strange out of worldly no alien or alien code in there and there's even pictures of the skull believed to be Akhenaten's and compare it to the elongated skulls from South America. You will notice that, well, um, it's not really the same 
sure he might have been deformed but not on the same level and we have Robert R. Cargill uh, my man come say that well Akhenaten instead of having this really photoshopped way to show himself like previous pharaohs he let them show him as if like no filter day on Instagram or whatever the kids are doing now and then they takes up Tutankhamun could he have alien genes as I said no uh, since the DNA analysis was made pre-2010 when the episode released they should have known better uh, but now nah. uh, they talking about that Tutankhamun's life is a mystery maybe how he died but we're quite clear on what he did uh, he brought Egypt back uh, from Telamarna and reinstituted the old gods and seems to have reigned on his own for a bit at least before his death. Sure, his death, a bit suspicious, but that would be a completely different story. Then we move on to Mali and the Dogon people. And it seems as our friend, the geologist, think that Egypt culture survived among the Dogon people. Um, so they have apparently a sky god called Ama, uh, who created the Namo. Namo then... So the sky god created Namo, and Namo then multiplied into several parts, one of which rebelled against Ama. Ama responded by destroying him and sending his ashes across the world. We meet a Peter Feinberg. Um, according to the Dogon, they got this from a god who landed on Earth encased with fire in a storm. I did not really find any anything to corroborate this. Is. Um, according to my research, it seems to be something bag come up with um, but the Dogon still celebrates Namo and the visitation according to the show they have old wooden masks and these masks tell mystic stories about their past uh, the show goes on saying um, except that these masks are Kanga masks used by Dogon people who adhere to the Ava society and the mask is supposed to evoke the creator god Ama that at least is correct but the ritual as as I can find it and described uh, today among anthropologists it's usually used to celebrate when somebody in, of importance has died to help their spirit move on to the next world <laughs> I find this whole section quite distasteful in general, to be honest. I quite colonial vibes over here. But I can Aten believe that he was directly descended from Aten. And since Nomo was created by Ama, it can't be a coincidence that the culture share mythical tales of being from the skies. Well, as I said, they... That the beings are from the sky seems to be something the ancient aliens expert have made up themselves and just repeating without reference. Um, as I said, I haven't found at least for uh, for 
the Egyptians' mythology something to corroborate that the gods were coming in sky ships or anything like that. Um, and from what I can find out from the Dogon people, it doesn't really match what they say in the show either. And something I'm realizing while doing the research for the episode is that the show keeps on saying Namo, as you heard me throughout the show so far, but Nomo is what the god is called. I'm not sure if it's an error on the show side, but... Yeah, um, yeah, it could have been that they <laughs> didn't want you to double check it or just a typo in their own notes. Uh, but Nomo was, as I say, created by Ama and was originally one sort of spiritual deity, but then transformed into two sets of twins. And of course, they got tired of Ama's rule and they rebelled against Ama. And Ama put them in their place by dismembering one of the Nomo, so don't turn it to ashes, they good old dismembering. Uh, so the story differs a little bit, um, not that much at least, um, but both Namo and Akhenaten had elongated heads and sure, the pictures I did find of Namo, they had a bit taller skulls, but again, Akhenaten didn't really have this elongated skull that they want you to picture, really. And then they move on to talk about uh, Grayul and Dieterlen, who visited the tribe in 1920. And during the trip, they apparently told, uh, the Dogo people apparently told and these people, uh, things that would come to question later. Uh, apparently they told that, that Amma was from the exact same star in the Sirius constellation, uh, where, well, they want to say that Osiris was born, and Sirius was apparently Bipotolo, and can't be seen with a naked eye. Uh, but they claim that Amma was from this star, but... Another anthropologist later, Walter Van Beek, um, has done more recent uh, studying uh, on the tribe and haven't been able to collaborate um, what the, the previous written earlier. And today the tribe seems to indicate that the Bipotolo as they mentioned, is probably Venus. And they show in some signs that apparently match how Sirius is moving. I'm not really sure why they dig in so much in the this part of the gods from the sky, but so far they haven't really mentioned anything noteworthy or that can't be explained to be honest they, they seems to m misrepresent dogon people unfortunately leaning back to studies from the 1920 that's quite questionable and it seems as well walter one beak and many others um, discredit 
this study so far and the dog on people seems to be on the same page there which is mm, not great for the source that they've chosen to use here but we will put a stop here uh, we're halfway through the episode basically and just to tease you i will do as the show say uh, before their break here so the answer to the visitor might be hidden in the american southwest let's find out what the answer is and if it's true but as i said so far i'm not super impressed uh, everything is quite easily explained so far uh, it's quite fun to dig down in some of these and i almost had forgotten the paracas culture so it was a nice refresher on it but the et hybrids after the dna analysis has been made and and published that's that's a bit lazy to be honest they can do better and as i said earlier please check the show notes i will collect reading materials resources sources boss aldrin punching a moon hoaxer <laughs> and a lot of things there just head over to digging up ancient aliens or follow the links below and you will you want to go to diggingupaliens.com to get to the website uh, google should help you get there too i hope at least but it's been amazing to share this little time with you so far and i do hope that we see each other very soon again remember please leave a positive review on your favorite podcast platform and as i said um if you do i will thank you by name in the next episode or next available episode at least and share the episode with a friend uh, who might enjoy it and of course you can like us on facebook instagram twitter or send a good old-fashioned email you can find all the contact information on our website that's again digging up ancient aliens.com it's been nice seeing you and take care be careful Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support to read more information and sign up right there.